Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. This is Bruce Kelly. I'm flying solo again this week. My good friend and colleague, Jeff Benjamin, is uh, out in the wilds of North Carolina uh, playing golf or uh, rustling doggies or barbecuing shrimp or whatever they do down there, uh, eating grits or something like that, and having a good time, I'm sure. Uh, so it's just me this week. You'll have to put up with me. But we got a couple of really great guests. We have, first off, we're going to have a, a, a plaintiff's attorney from a group called Piaba, uh, whom uh, we speak to frequently um, to get the uh, uh, non-industry side of um, legal news, uh, legal cases involving arbitration, typically, in FINRA. And then after that, we're going to have our very own Emil Halle. Uh, talking about a story he wrote about the Great Resignation, which is affecting uh, people in the financial advice business. So first off, we have Mike Edmiston, the new president of Piaba, and an attorney with Jonathan W. Evans and Associates in California. Uh, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bruce. Glad to be here. And let me see if I can get Piaba right. It stands for Public Investors Arbitration Bar Association. Is that correct or no? So so close, but uh, oh. not quite. Uh, we just changed our name last year to be more reflective of- What are uh, you changing the name? Man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very much for the same reason I'm on your podcast today. Uh, so what now, does it stand uh, for, Piaba then? Because it's a funny kind of name, right? Sure. It's Public Investor Advocate Bar Association. Uh, okay. Public Investor Advocate Bar Association. So you changed it from Arbitration Bar Association to Advocate Bar Association within the past couple of years. Why did the, I, I've attended um, Piaba meetings for years. I haven't gone frequently. My colleague, Mark Sheff, covers it more formally out of Washington. But before he came along, I used to go to these meetings in, I don't know, Colorado and Texas and, and uh, Florida and all that kind of stuff and always get good good uh, background information on what was going on um, with investor complaints against the big securities firms. So why change it from arbitration to advocate bar association? Because it's more reflective of what our members are doing representing clients, uh, retail customers in the dispute resolution space. Uh, it's no longer just arbitration. Uh, the broker-dealer space, uh, while still there's mandatory arbitration and virtually all customer agreements with broker dealers require arbitration. We've seen an absolute uh, blossoming of disputes in the RIA space. And the investment advisory agreements uh, sometimes require arbitration. Sometimes they try to sneak right. in a mandatory mediation or sometimes it's going straight to court. Right. That's interesting. We'll get to that in a, okay. in a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope some of our broker dealer listeners aren't out there. Haven't like, you know, I can see them. Some of these guys who run these big firms, they've maybe they've snapped the glass, you know, like in the movies where you crush the, the you're having a drink and you crush the glass in frustration or you like John Belushi in animal house, you bang the bottle over your head or something. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh... <laughs> because they, they regard, you know, the brokerage industry for years has regarded you guys and how many attorneys or firms in, in Piaba or members? There are just under 400 uh, attorney members in Piaba. Right. So they re okay. review, they regard you guys as a nuisance. 
you know, uh, as a real pain in the in the behind. Sometimes we're a nuisance. Sometimes we're the uh, scary horror story that they tell new brokers to behave themselves. So, uh, but uh, um, ultimately, well, I, we're we're there to keep them uh, keep them honest. I mean, well, that's the that's the whole point. I think from the dot com crash to the hedge fund crash to the real estate crash, right to the REITs to the private placements. Um, to the Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican bonds, right? I mean, Piaba is really, to me, the main group, even before the regulators, that puts the spotlight on these product type failures that we've seen historically in the brokerage industry. That's a very correct statement. We are the first ones to hear it from our prospective clients. Obviously, we're virtually all of us operate on a contingency fee basis. So right. the first thing we have to do, anyone- So you don't members, get paid- if, if a client, a potential client comes into you, you're not billing him or her or that family right away. You have to do the whole process of getting the award in order to get paid, right? Well, let, let's take a step back. Uh, the first thing you got to do is take a look at the product or what, what the heck went wrong. Right. And determine what the problem was. And so you have to become an expert on the product very quickly right. to understand how to make a claim how to make it successful, and how to get an award to get your client paid. Mike, with all that as, as background, what is, and you the new president of, of this group of Piaba, what are the two or three top things on the on the group's agenda for the coming year? Sure. Um, there are three things I've put on my agenda for uh, Piaba for this year. Uh, the first is continuing our efforts to fix the unpaid arbitration award problem. That's a biggie. That, that, that's a biggie. We just yeah. re released our third report. Uh, we're talking with uh, FINRA, of course. We're talking with the SEC to have them uh, exercise their power under- It's uh, millions of dollars a year. It, it, is, uh, it is millions of dollars a year. 30% of all arbitration awards have gone unpaid in 2020. 24% uh, of the dollars awarded went unpaid. And those numbers have not changed since Piaba has been doing these studies since 2016. What has changed, though, is the amount of all awards, though, right? We looked at of this course. recently, and it seems like the amount of awards has dropped a bit, right, in the past few years. I, that, that, again, that's a fair statement. I, I think for 2020, we can point to the pandemic and say you know, right. the number of awards dropped off for obvious reasons. Right. Uh, no face-to-face -face arbitration, right? Right. No, no face to face arbitration. You know, there was a period of time when no arbitration was going forward while FINRA and council were trying to figure out how to, you know, have virtual hearings. Uh, once this got started, uh, you know, there weren't that many. Uh, it's, it's been a slow adaptation process. But ultimately, I keep coming back to the percentages. Right. Uh, the, the percentages just have not changed. And that and to me, that's the bigger problem, not not the number of awards, not the uh, single dollar awarded. It's a percentage of awards that go unpaid. And the it's 25 cents of every dollar for the industry, yep. basically. Yep. Before we, we get into it. more details about that, could you just describe in layman's terms or cocktail party terms, right? What is an arbitration? Sure. <laughs> an, an arbitration. If I'm a client, you know, of a big firm X or small firm Y, what is, and something goes wrong, what is an, what is an arbitration for me? Sure. An, an arbitration for you is essentially your day in court, taken out of court, taken away from a judge, taken away from a jury. Instead, you're put into a hearing room with one or three 
arbitrators who act as both judge and jury. The hearing process looks and sounds very much similar to uh, if you were in court where there are opening statements, uh, direct examination, cross-examination of witnesses, uh, presentation of evidence, uh, presentation of expert testimony, and then a closing argument by both sides. Uh, but ultimately, arbitration is a contractual creature where both parties have agreed, and I, you, know, you can put that in quotes for a moment, uh, to go to arbitration in lieu of going to court. Uh, one of the most important things to arbitration, particularly for the securities industry, is arbitration is a confidential pro process. Right. Uh, there is no public spotlight on what went wrong, why it went wrong, why a product blew up, why a broker was misbehaving, that sort of thing. That's all kept uh, in the dark and hush-hush. That really uh, flummoxed me when I started at Investment News 21 years ago, almost 22 years ago now, right at the height of the dot-com bubble and the crash. You know, the, the, in 2001, 2002, 2003, there was a flood of um, claims involving, you know, against Smith Barney and against Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley because of their tech and Merrill Lynch, right? Because of their technology, uh, their tech stock rec recommendations. You couldn't see as a reporter, I couldn't see what was going on in these arbitrations. And, and, and it was just in incredibly uh, frustrating. Uh, absolutely. It's, it, it's frustrating for everyone. And perhaps on a broader basis, you know, transparency seems to be the enemy of uh, much of the securities <laughs> industry. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, ar arbitration uh, benefits the securities industry enormously by, by its confidentiality uh, process. Um, I think the industry would uh, dispute that and say it, it benefits the client, right? Because it's a speedy process and it's well-funded and, and we could have that debate, you know, till the cows come home, right? Uh, that, 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 that would require uh, several cocktail party conversations, yeah. but yes. <laughs> uh, later for that, later in the day for that, perhaps. So you said these, are, these unpaid arbitration awards, that's the top of the agenda for, for the group. What is your conversation with FINRA and the SEC right now? What does that sound like to you? Are they are they listening, or do they want to? Are they going to do something about this, or or what? From Piava's perspective, uh, we've been advocating for a pool of money to be created, right, to pay these unpaid arbitration awards. And the idea here is the pool is funded from the fines and penalties assessed against the bad actors in the industry. When FINRA right settles a case or settles an enforcement action with a firm that's done something wrong, there's usually a fine. Sometimes it's a small fine, sometimes it's an enormous fine. Uh, but what we're, what we're suggesting is that a portion of that fine money be cut out and go to a pool to fund the ar arbitration awards. The idea here is bad actors are paying for the arbitration awards caused, the unpaid arbitration awards caused by bad actors. Uh, so we're not asking that uh, the firms that pay their arbitration awards, you know, kick in. We're not asking for a fee or something else right. on top of the uh, the, the uh, fees they're already paying. We're we're trying to come right to the source and give these give the firms an opportunity to, to cure their bad behavior. And if they don't cure it, they're still going to you know be the ones paying for the unpaid arbitration awards at the end. The, the th I've written columns about this for several years now and, and, and blogs and the like. And the thing that really sticks in my craw about this is 
you know, the client signs up, signs the arbitration agreement, right, to open the uh, brokerage account. And so the client is playing by the rules. Well, the client doesn't have a choice. Uh, right. The and, client doesn't have and, a choice, but the client is saying, okay, I have the good, you know, I'm putting my faith and, and credence, you know, into uh, this agreement and I'm signing, right. you know, and you're selling me a product, you know. So the client has, has signed up for this. And so it's really sticking the thumb in the eye of, of the clients out there who get stiffed. It, it is. And understanding that, you know, the industry's usual response to when, when we ask for this pool is to say, well, you know, judgments go unpaid all the time out of court. Why should we be different? Twofold. Uh, number one, you know, there's an entire world of securities regulation that says that for retail investors, their money, their future, their savings is important and needs to be protected. Right. If you look at FINRA's tagline, investor protection, you look at the SEC, investor protection, it, it's all stressing that. And so having an unpaid arbitration award pool at the end of this process is the last line of investor protection. Because when somebody goes and does everything right, they save their money, they open IRAs, they invest wisely, they, they do everything appropriately, and then a broker or advisor gets his or her hands on the money and does something terrible and causes a loss, that's the first harm. That one client, and there aren't that many clients that when they suffer that first harm actually take, take action to file an arbitration or pursue their losses, they go through all of the rigmarole of one to two years worth of the arbitration process, right. getting to right. the award, all the layout. And at the end of that, they get told, so sorry, there's no money. Well, that's yeah. a second harm. When they have that second harm, that, that erodes confidence in the financial se sector. Usually these people, if they've suffered a big loss, they're now going to be dependent on social security uh, and government benefits rather than their savings. And so that causes a greater societal ill, a societal problem. And that's not what our country is about. That's not what all of our securities regulation is about. And that's not what our philosophies of independence and uh, caring for yourself is all about in this country. So, you know, you know, an unpaid arbitration award has devastating effects beyond just the fact that it's a piece of paper that... Uh, Nobody's getting paid on. Uh, what else is on the agenda, on the group's agenda sure. for this year? The, the second thing is we're taking a very hard look at what's happening with arbitration in the RIA space. Yeah, this is fascinating to me. Um, uh, it, it, it is. It's an informational black hole is what it yeah, is. Yeah, right. Because uh, I've and, reported on a few gems, arbitrations and the like. But I mean, I'm talking over 21 plus years. <laughs> of reporting. Right. Like two or right. three that I can remember, you know, gems types awards, and um, it's uh, it's it's it is a black hole, you know, much more so than Finra. I mean, Finra arbitration awards are posted online, right? You can see the amount, you can see who signed off, the, the three arbitrators who signed off, etc. These private arbitrations, though, that as I understand it, are part of the uh, RIA contract with the client. It stipulates private arbitration, right? They don't have a FINRA, right, to go to a FINRA arbitration. Well, um, how about the answer of yes and no? And um, I like that. <laughs> the, Sound uh, like a the, lawyer the, there, Mike. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> imagine that. Not that there's uh, anything wrong with that, my friend. <laughs> 
but uh, it, what happens in the RIA space is the RIA can, the advisor can put in any arbitration clause they want. That means they can name a, they can name FINRA, they can name AAA, American right. Arbitration Association, JAMS, uh, Joe's Arbitration Shop, whoever they want. And ultimately, if the customer, the client signs that agreement with that pre-dispute arbitration clause, a court's going to enforce that. And so that client's going to be bound by whatever um, provider is named in the contract. Right. And so at that point, that creates all sorts of problems because the customer has no idea uh, anything about the forum provider, its rules, its arbitrators, potential right. conflicts, right. past awards, and most importantly, the fees. And the fees are high for, for these uh, non-FINRA arbitrators. Much they're, they're two or three times the amount than a FINRA arbitration, right? I, 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 think, I think you're probably understating that by magnitude of 10. It's that much more expensive. I, I would. I worked wow. for Jams for several years as a manager of a couple of their offices, and I've huh. been a client of Jams uh, representing uh, investors. And ultimately, if you're looking at a week's arbitration with a single arbitrator at Jams, you're looking at twenty to thirty thousand dollars per side, and that's money that's required to be paid in before a party sets foot into the hearing room. So six sixty thousand dollars, forty to sixty thousand dollars, just to open a, a, a Manila folder. Uh, well, a little more than opening a Manila folder, but uh, yes, I mean that that that's ultimately it. Uh, Jams itself is designed for very high end uh, right. commercial disputes, Fortune right. one hundred companies. Uh, you know, I don't I don't knock them for their fees or their fee schedules, but what happens is savvy advisory firms and their attorneys have figured out that if they name jams or a firm that doesn't shift fees uh, or require the industry side to subsidize the cost of the arbitration, that the fees alone can act as a shield to any arbitration claim being filed. Right. Because the client gets wind of the fees, understands the fees and, and in that magnitude and, and, and just to start at 40 to 60,000 and then much more to come and the client blinks, right? You know, let's talk back to the formation of the uh, attorney-client relationship. When I'm talking with a prospective client and I see a jams clause, I've got to have that conversation with right. the client and say, "Look, here, here's here's an issue here. You you're going to be getting a bill for twenty, thirty, forty thousand uh, dollars from jams to have this arbitration, and that's got to be paid in first. Uh, with one exception, uh, I, I've seen every client." decline the opportunity to uh, go forward because they literally at this point do not have the money. It's, it's, it's been right. lost. Uh, they, right. they can't afford the arbitration. And wh what else is on the group's uh, agenda? Mike? Uh, the, the other, the other uh, big item here, and it relates back to the RIA space, is looking at form CRS. Mm. And that's going to be, uh, that, that's part of the Reg BI package. Right. And that Form CRS is used by broker-dealers and SEC-registered advisory firms. And we're going to ask the SEC to make three modifications or th require three disclosures to Form CRS. Number one, to identify the arbitration clause and arbitration provider if there is one in an agreement. Number two, provide an estimate of costs 
for the arbitration huh. if there needs to be one. Right. And number three, disclose both the existence and amount of any insurance that may cover a potential investor claim against the firm. Hmm. Again, it, it, it comes back to transparency. This is These are important factors for a prospective client to know about a firm uh, before signing up. And that information because, for an RIA is presently not included in its uh, marketing disclosure for its form ADV. Is that what you're saying? Of course not. No, it's, it's, it's no. Nowhere, nowhere in there. Because I read those too, you know, um, and I don't recall seeing anything like that. I think they have to disclose if they are being sued though, right? Well, uh, sometimes. Again, very lawyerly comment there, Mike. Uh, well, you, you know, the, the reality <laughs> is form, form ADV is a principles-based uh, disclosure form. Right. And so it's really thrown to the firm itself, the RIA, to decide whether it needs to make a disclosure, whether it's being sued or whether there's been an arbitration okay. award. And then for a really brain-breaking activity, sometimes the form ADV requires the firm to go to the states it's registered at in and make a decision based on the state regulations. Uh, so to, to say the disclosure requirements are chaotic is, is an understatement. Right. And so part of, part, of, part of our underlying efforts also is gonna be trying to work with the SEC to encourage the RIA space to move to a more bright line disclosure rule, uh, more similar to what you see on Form BD. Well, uh, Mike, you definitely have your work cut out for you. Um, it's a, it's a one-year uh, uh, seat you have over uh, there as president? My, my seat is one year. Uh, we've started with these projects knowing full well that it's unlikely any of them will get accomplished <laughs> in one year. But... You know, right, right. You're now, dealing you know, with Piata's, thinner in the SEC, Mike. Come on, man. Yeah, yeah, take yeah, decades. You know, you know. Piava's been around for 30 years. We, we've, we, we know the game. <laughs> uh, we've, we've put in a line of uh, senior leadership here that are going to continue this work in the years to come until we fix the problems. Right. All right, Mike. Uh, that's fascinating. Trying to uh, foresee what uh, is going to become of the RIA and arbitration and RIA and lawsuits going forward is, is really something for people like me to watch. So I really appreciate you uh, so we can inform our audience, you know, the investment news readers and listeners and the like. Well, well thank you, Bruce. We, we, we count on you because with, without the media spotlight, without shining the light on some of these problems, uh, it, these things don't get fixed and investors continue to get abused. So it's, uh, we're, I'm, I'm honored to be here and I encourage you, please keep up the good work. We're very grateful for it, Bruce. Okay, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. That's Mike Edmiston, the new president of Piaba. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the second part of uh, this afternoon's Investment News Podcast. We have our, uh, my colleague, Emil Halle. Uh, who is our insurance and retirement reporter with Investment News. And he's, he's here to talk about a great article that he did um, in this week's newspaper uh, about the so-called great resignation and how it's affecting uh, in, in a meaningful way, I think, having a, having a how that, that trend, and I don't like saying things are trends, but it seems like this is a real trend, um, and how that's a actually affecting people who are financial advisors or who are in the financial advisor marketplace. So 
Emil, I know you've had a busy day, and uh, so I really appreciate you taking a couple of minutes to drop by the podcast. Hey, thanks, Bruce. Good to good to join you as always. And um, I guess I should start off with letting you know my um, my title has changed. I am the retirement editor. Um, it's more a reflection of what I currently do because um, my my job duties haven't changed, but uh, the title has. Well, good for you. I hope they gave you, you you know like a nice uh, chunk of change um, for that. Yeah, I won't get into that. <laughs> we don't have to get into details, but people should. <laughs> Well, if people get new titles, they should get rewarded. Yeah. They should. They should. Uh, well, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Uh, I apologize. You know, why don't you t- tell us, first of all, about this cover story? And I'm just interested in what the term the Great Resignation uh, means, first off. And where does it come from and all that kind of stuff? So it's been it's been this this term to describe what was happening in the labor market. There have been a much higher rate of incidents of people quitting their jobs than there has been in the past, even uh, pre-pandemic. And part of the reason for that was that the market was just kind of catching up. You know, there weren't a lot of people who were quitting their jobs right as the pandemic set in. And And we're just not, we're not talking about just financial advisors here. We're talking about yeah, across yeah, various industries, because people were getting laid off too, right? People would... right. Yeah. And so like the 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 quit rates that we're seeing now kind of reflect that that kind of catch up that has been happening. And there's a couple of reasons behind that. It's that people have been at home. They've reevaluated their priorities. They right. you know, spending more time with their loved ones, their pets not having to deal with an hour to two hour commute, depending on where you live, sitting in a car, sitting in a subway, being miserable, um, just, you know, realizing they don't want to go back to a certain way of work. And, you know, I think in some way that, that, that also applies to how satisfied they are with what they do. So there have been people who, especially those who have more financial resources, who have had what what um, someone I talked to called a pandemic epiphany, where they went off and they they wanted to pursue something that was more meaningful. And that might have been work-related. It might have been traveling the world, just kind of taking um, a bit of a sabbatical, if you wanted to call it that, um, but just doing something differently than they were doing before. And um, I got to, ch- to, to chat with um, an organizational psychologist at Texas A&M, uh, Anthony Klotz, who is the one who is credited with coining that term, you know, and and he pointed. That's pretty cool for him, right? To get, I mean, that's part of I think a journalist's aspiration too, right? Is to actually coin a phrase that gets used, yeah, or part of the common, you know, and becomes part of the common tongue. For, so, good on him for doing that, you know. Yeah, definitely. He was he was surprised at uh, how quickly it caught on. Is he thinking? Is Klotz uh, the psychologist? Is he thinking about quitting? And moving across country, and we didn't we didn't get into that. Uh, <laughs> I could not can't comment on that. I have to imagine he's he's pretty happy with what he does right now, though. So the finance, but your article, folks. So that's all background. So your article, I think um, you and the editors came up with the idea is why don't we see if this is applying to financial advisors? The Great Resignation, right? Well, so that was part of it. It wasn't the whole story. Um, what I was really interested in were these responses I was getting. You know, I, I, I cast a pretty wide net with, with advisors and said, what are you advising clients to do in this, in these situations? Huh, Just right. to add to the story a little bit. Right. 
but I started hearing from tons of folks who um, are part of the Great Resignation. They left, and in most cases, it was to start their own practices. And there are a whole set of concerns uh, that they have to deal with when that happens, you know, related to benefits and pay and the amount of hours they spend right. work. Because an advisor is going to take a hit in pay when he, he or she leaves to start uh, their own practice because you have to move the clients over from whatever institution you were formerly with, a uh, big institution, a uh, big bank or something like that, or, or a, a big RIA, you know, if you go out on your own. Um, yeah. And that takes time. And like you said in the article, too, benefits are a concern, right? You had one instance, I think, where someone was a financial planner and they their husband was also a freelancer, so or their wife was, and so they lost the insurance, but they figured out that um, the Obamacare subsidies were enough to help them or something? Yeah, so in some cases, the timing was just right for this to happen. Um, but, and you know, talking to financial advisors, they're kind of in a, <laughs> a unique position um, because they can evaluate these things and, and make sound decisions that other people may not. Right. You know, they can weigh the pros and cons financially. Right. And, you know, in this case, it made sense for them. That's but, what yeah, they do with uh, their clients, right? Lives. Yeah. So they should be able to do it to their own. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't know if any of these folks had their own financial advisors who they who they turn to for these for this kind of guidance. But it's yeah, it's um, I think going out there without health insurance uh, is is a pretty scary thing. And yeah, you know, the same thing if you're in your um, you know prime earning years and you don't have a 401k plan or a 401 match, that's right. that's also a bit um, concerning. But, um, you know, one person who I talked to mentioned that SEP and simple plans can fill in for that gap. But what you have to consider is that, you know, on top of whatever uh, income you're, you're generating, you have to be making enough to make up for that lost employer match that you were getting and have enough to be able to contribute. Yeah, lots of concerns, really. And then, you know, people sometimes have the goal of, you know, I want to go off on my own so that I don't have, so that I eventually have more freedom. But, you know, in the first years that you start your own practice, you're wearing all the hats in the business. You're, you're working long hours, you're scrambling. So it's not just like folks who are burned out are going off on their own and, and having an easy time right now. It's, it's definitely a change in lifestyle and, and they're thinking about the kind of freedom that they wanna have in the future. Yeah, I mean, a, a variety of people in the article cited they get to spend much more time with their kids, I think is an overarching concern. Yeah, and people got a taste of that during the pandemic. And, um, you know, I, I, one person I talked to had mentioned that not having that commute and potentially extra hours at the office meant that it was spending more than two hours a day with his kids as opposed to half an hour. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to look back on the time that you spent at work and, and miss those special moments with your kids. And I, I think that's really ringing true for a lot of people right now. And finally, just one last thing I saw. I'm interested in what you're, if you're, if you have any prognostication, I think you cited numbers for July and August. We're in November now that there were 4 million people resigned in those months. 4.3 in August. And that was up from 4 million the month before. And in January, 2020, it was 3.6. So, so it's higher still. 
at the end of this summer than it was before the COVID shutdown occurred. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fascinating to me. What is, do you have any, the people you talk to, I mean, you were talking about today with people and, and, and the impact of the past six to 12 months on their, on their work lives and the like, and their, and their home lives. Yeah, do you have any guesses? Are, are people still going to be resigning, you know, right now or, or through into next year? Is this, is this with us here to stay, in other words? So, so at, at the risk of making a really bad prediction, and I'm not a labor economist, so what, what, I'll, what I'll do is kind of- Go ahead, go for it, dude. Come and, on. And point to something else that's going to be happening in February, and that is the uh, resumption of federal student loan payments. And I have to imagine for a lot of people, that's a big deal. Um, you know, I, I wrote about um, some recent surveys, and there have been a ton of these in recent months, huh. kind of predicting what's going to happen or how people are going to be affected when they have to start making those payments again, having not had to since I think it was uh, May of 2020. So, or it might have even been March. Um, but anyway, like the better part of two years not having to make these payments. And for some people, that was this huge financial lifeline. Right. And for others who were in a better financial situation, it was a time to pay down other debt or save up, build emergency reserves, get ready to buy a house, any number of things. But for those folks who are struggling, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to be a better time to consider quitting your job or pursuing something that isn't as financially secure when you're going to have that extra burden. Um, so I, I think it will be really interesting to see what happens next year. So, I, and, and I know that a lot of people are saying this isn't a trend that's going to go, in, go away anytime soon, but I don't think there's, there's a whole lot of certainty in that either. And that's a firm date for those uh, student loan payments, federal student loan payments to resume. It's not, a, it's not something that's in the various uh, infrastructure, the, the human infrastructure bill that Congress is kicking around right now to extend even further out. Oh, I don't think so, but um, I, I I can't tell you for sure on that. That's uh, you should have uh, Mark Sheff. I think Jr. we might have Sheffy on next week. You should. I, you should. He's he's covering those things up to the minute. Yes, he is. Uh, as um, I, am. I haven't heard anything along those lines, and and just me, you know, reading news websites and watching the news. So, I you're you're most I'm, I'm sure you're correct there. Um, all right, so uh, the great resignation article by Emile Halle. That's uh, in the Investment News newspaper right now, if you get it at your office or your home, or, and it's online too right now on our website, investmentnews.com. Emile, uh, congrats on the promotion and thanks for coming by as always. Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate you having me on. Well, everybody, that was another great episode of the Investment News podcast. If it's Monday, it's time for another podcast. We want to thank our guests this week, Mike Edmiston and Emil Halle, the newly promoted Emil Halle, we should note. We also want to thank Angelica Hester, our fine producer. And you can find uh, the Investment News podcast, of course, on the website, the aforementioned investmentnews.com. You can also find it on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Um, my partner, uh, uh, Professor Jeff Benjamin, he's supposed to be back next week off the golf course and out of the barbecue pit uh, and back on the podcast. If you want to reach him between now and then, please tag him on Twitter. His handle is at Benji Writer. Mine is at BD News Guy. And stay tuned because we will be talking to you next week. 